Hi, and welcome to Chatter, the podcast from Kanos about all things tech, design, and product. I'm James Ashby, a business analyst at Kanos. Uh, today, I'm actually a guest presenter. If you've listened before, you'll have heard Abby Alori presenting. He has kindly handed me the way today when we're going to be talking about design thinking with head of design here at Kanos, Paul Blackburn. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks. You? Yeah, very well, thanks. Good. Before we dive into questions, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so I've been at Kanos just under two years. Prior to joining, I was delivering the outcomes for Public Health England around increased mortality, reduced obesity in children, uh, all of those good things that we want to see as a growing society, sure, but doing it through digital tools. But my journey to get there, I mean, I kind of bounced on a whole load of different digital agencies, done a lot of marketing stuff, actually started off, uh, I trained as a children's book illustrator, which not many people know. Um, yeah, ended up founding and running my own creative agency for a few years, and we focused on servicing charities, not-for-profits, kind of governmental clients looking specifically at how we can use innovation and innovation styles of thinking such as design thinking and bringing them into an agile delivery world and helping them to prototype and test ideas. Sure. So that's kind of the stuff that I brought into chaos. Um, and now, uh, kind of almost by default, I've ended up overseeing the design team of mixed disciplines. I think because I've had a role as managing director before and I've kind of run small and large teams, it felt like a natural fit. Sure. And given your background, how do you feel that managing those multi-disciplines has allowed you to manage them correctly, given that they are obviously doing different roles? I wouldn't say I've managed them particularly correctly. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that there would be dissension in the ranks. Um, I think it's about understanding and appreciating that each role has a completely separate set of value to bring to a product uh, and understanding that they all come from different academic backgrounds. So you talked to, you talked to Dan Berry before, who's one of our most senior user researchers, his background is really quite academic. So a lot of people here have done uh, MAs, possibly multiple MAs. Some people have done PhDs to get to where they are. And I think that's something that's overlooked sometimes by our more engineering-based colleagues is that design sounds like it's all, you know, colourful shapes and colouring in and all that kind of stuff. But actually, a lot of it has a deep background in rigorous scientific thinking. Um, research is one of those... Uh, content design, strangely enough, is one of those. It comes from a 60s movement called phenomenology, which is all about experience and the experience of the thing. Um, and that's one of the, the strands that's fed into design thinking when it was kind of uh, conceived as a, as a methodology. I appreciate that each of those disciplines has a distinctly different background, uh, different set of values to bring to a project and sure. can contribute at different parts of the life cycle. Okay, great. And obviously brings us on to design thinking. So please just give us a bit of an overview of design thinking, what it is and where it's come from. Sure, absolutely. So it's a term that was coined in the 1980s by lecturers at Stanford University over in America. Um, and they applied it to what was really a movement in design education that was a blend of a number of different areas. Design thinking um, is a set of frameworks or a set of ways of approaching a problem. And there's like hundreds of different frameworks you can use but they all boil down to one core set of things that you do first thing is empathize so you understand your audience the audience of whatever it is you're creating could be a service could be a product could be an experience could be you know you could be building a city but you need to understand the audience you need to get into their shoes you need to stand where they stand and see things through their perspective sure there is no substitute for primary research and what we do here, we do you know, face-to-face interviews, and we do contextual interviews, and you know we do ride-alongs and all of those kind of things. The second thing you need to do is you need to therefore, once you've understood 
what's going on for your audience. You then define what the problems are. And that could be multiple problems, or it could be one problem. And by that, I mean you need to frame it in such a way that it allows you to think about what possible solutions might arise from it. So it's not necessarily about, oh, you know, we've got a problem with poverty. It's what, what about poverty exactly in society is the problem that we could then take forward and fix. So there's quite a big piece of work to do in definition. And that's where I think design and product work really well together because, you know, defining problems and articulating problem statements is something that we share, I think, mm. in uh, both of our worlds. So once you've understood your audience, you've articulated their problem, you then go through a period of ideation, trying to propose possible solutions to what those problems might be. And they might be half thought, they might be half articulated. Synthesis is a, is a very, very difficult thing for people to do, to make that leap from, you know, here's a bunch of possibly really competing pieces of information, how do I bring them together in a way that is meaningful that I can use to, to um, lead into further action? So that whole phase is it's really critical, obviously, to come up with those ideas. But it's sure. also it's critical that it's come from a place of understanding. Um, following on from the ideation, you then you move into a prototyping phase. And the work that I've done in the past, prototyping can mean so many things. It could be a market proposition statement. It could mean a new policy that you take out and you start investigating with users whether or not it would be right for them. You could release uh, a landing page with a button on it to ask people to sign up. There's no product behind it, but you're beginning to gauge interest. So it's all about trying to build just enough to gain an insight as to market viability and whether or not users are interested in the thing that you've built and whether it meets the needs that they've expressed further back in your empathizing process. The purpose of it is just to work out whether or not your ideas work for the, for the user. Um, and that brings us on to the, the kind of that last part of the, those areas, which is testing. Testing it with users is the key thing. It, whatever it is, it's got to be put in the hands of the people that you originally spoke to. What is going to work for your audience? What insights are you going to get off the back of this thing you've created? Because it may be that you've kind of gone away, you've, you've done your ideation, you've created this thing, take it to the audience, they go, no, that's, that's exactly what I didn't want, I wanted that thing over there. But because they haven't quite articulated it, because they haven't seen it before, they couldn't really describe what they wanted. So that is a really crucial part. And very often, that's the bit that then ends up in a loop. So uh, prototyping, testing, prototyping, testing. And you do that until you can move into the next phase. Sure. So they're kind of the five, the big areas. They don't necessarily have to be done sequentially. You, you don't even need to do all of them. So there's, there's a number of different ways you can cut it, but effectively, um, it's that cycle of understand your user, understand their problem, come up with a bunch of ideas to solve the problem, build the, the smallest, most miniature viable thing that you can to answer that question, and then test it with your users to prove whether or not it works. Can you talk us through some of your own experiences with specifically using design thinking and when it's really helped on a project? Sure. No problem. So um, I'll go back to uh, a project that I did for Public Health England that I mentioned. So have you heard of Couch to 5K, kind of a running programme? BBC. Yes. Sure. So I designed that. Okay. There was already, in, in the US, there was a guy who had come up with the Couch to 5K running programme. So it was running programme over nine weeks, and you do three runs a week, and you build up your stamina to get to half an hour or 5K of running. The point of it is to do regular exercise every week. And Public Health England saw it and went, this is great, this is a great public health initiative. So they developed a set of podcasts um, and got one of their internal staff to do the voiceover for it. 
And it went down an absolute storm and people loved it. And then they decided that they wanted to create an app to kind of wrap the podcast together. And because they'd gone into a joint venture with BBC-inspired kind of campaign strand, they were offered a bunch of talent to do the voiceover. You know, runners could select who they wanted to hear. And it, that's the point where I was brought in to design the app and the interface. So we knew we had a target audience. We knew we had effectively a product, but we needed to give it some shape. We need to, uh, needed to understand what would work for them. So the first thing we had to do, so I worked with a researcher on this. The first thing we did was we scheduled a load of research sessions. And I tell you what, doing six weeks of research where you have to go running as part of the <laughs> research sessions really makes you appreciate those sessions where you can do it face-to-face in people's homes. But it was brilliant. So we got to see insights of how people lived and their lived experience of engaging with this stuff. Now, bearing in mind that Public Health England's target audience was, they stated C2DE, socioeconomic rate, but it was more DE. So kind of medium medium household income is probably going to be about 20k um typically what we found in our research was it was single mums usually with two kids but they knew that they needed to do something about the health ongoing they knew that they needed to get their kids more fit you know it was all that kind of stuff so we were trying to work out how we could create something that had really low barriers to entry that rewarded progress that allowed people to take it at their own pace rather than forcing them through you're going to do three three uh Three runs a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You know, it would allow them to repeat months when they needed to. So there's loads of insights came out in just going and talking to people in that target audience and seeing their lived experience. And then when we kind of built low-level prototypes of the interface, just showing how interactions would work, we took them out into the field and we went running with people. And you know, it was stupid things like making buttons the right size to hit while right. running. Particularly in that audience, we found that there was. Um, a higher level of people wearing glasses. It's it's this thing called comorbidities. You tend to find that people who have particular behavioural characteristics will have other overlapping behavioural characteristics, or they might have other physical characteristics. So uh, as an example of that in the work that we're looking at at the moment with inclusive design in chaos, we kind of showing that people who have visual impairment are often dyslexic. So it's those kind of intersectionalities where things overlap. Sure. What we found was... People in the target audience that we were looking at tended to ha- tended to be short-sighted, basically. Um, so if you're giving someone an interface on a phone that's moving around, you need those buttons to be really obvious and really big and really high contrast and hittable. So the design of it became really quite important. We also recognised that there was part of the interface that we started to develop that showed you visually your timer. And we, we said to people, oh, you know, you could keep it on your screen while you run around and you could see how long you've got to go. And we took it to one lady in East London and she went, look at the park outside my window. So we, I think we did the research in like a fe- February time. She's like, look at the park outside my window. It's at seven o'clock at night. She said, it's pitch black. I'm not going to run around that with my phone in. <laughs> okay, I kind of get that. That's nothing to do with physicality. That's location. And the, and the impact of that on the way we designed the app was significant because it meant that we had to change a load of the stuff that we'd already designed into. So that's, I mean, for me, that's pure design thinking. That's capturing those user insights, prototyping it really quickly. We took it back out thinking it was one thing. We were told, absolutely, it's not that thing. So we had to change it again, and we iterated, we iterated, and iterated. And while we were doing that, it allowed us to blend into it behavior change techniques. So we worked with academics from University, College London, so UCL, 
to factor into it not only behavior change kind of nudge techniques, um, but also we underpinned it with a database that was robust enough so that data analysts, like academic data analysts, could, sure. could understand where the behavior change was actually happening. So if you, if you do download the app, you'll see before starting a run, we ask, how do you feel? And then after you've completed a run, we ask the same question. And that's looking for whether or not there is um, an improvement, not necessarily at that time, but over time, we, in the background, we could chart whether or not your mood, impro- your mood improved. And for us, that was a significant KPI, being able to show that users, A, were engaging with it over time, B, were doing it on a regular basis, but C, it was having an impact on them. By capturing before and after as a data point, we could show that people were doing before and after, because you could only access after once it played all the way through. And we can show it over time, which was brilliant. But again, that only came out of us watching people and understanding that there is that endorphin rush of after you know you do exercise. Yeah, so let's capture that and let's understand how that works. And it's a great app as well, because I know people that have used it have made great strides to excuse the pun in, in actually improving their health. So cool. It's great. One of the things I love is there's a hashtag on Twitter, Couch5K, and you often get people posting screenshots on it when they've completed a run. I just love going on there because a you know there's a massive ego part of me that's like that's my work that you screenshot that you repost it. <laughs> but also there are literally hundreds of people thanking the app right. for you know some of them transforming their lives or for helping them get fitter or you know knowing that they can do more with their kids. It's genuinely moving stuff. Yeah. Typically, they're all selected Sarah Millican as their running trainer, and they all tag her in it. <laughs> and what's lovely is she always responds, <laughs> which is really cool. Very warming voice that's motivating enough, isn't it? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Paul, I guess keen to hear as well of a situation or an example that you've experienced where design thinking hasn't been fully embraced or embraced at all initially by senior stakeholders on a project. That's a really good question. For several years, I worked at a big digital agency where they were much more marketing-focused, and their output was all about increasing click-through rates and uh, you know getting banners and stuff in front of people. And try as we might, we you know we we were desperate to get proper user-centered design in there. It was always really difficult because they were driven by completely different KPIs than we were. So we would be all about the experience and understanding whether or not the experience was good. They would be all about are we selling enough loans or credit cards. I think that one of the key things here is when design thinking comes up against business motivation, design thinking has always been the one that's been pushed back because it feels fluffier or it feels softer. Whereas I think we're getting to a point now where brands are really beginning to focus on the user, focus on the experience, making sure that that's as best as it could possibly be. That's becoming more prevalent. So you're seeing brands now really prioritizing that, but there's still, certainly within financial services, there's still a whole raft of the legacy you know, tier one banks that are just looking at customers as numbers that they can make a huge amount of money from rather than users of their service. Monzo is a really good example of a brand, I think, that have put the design thinking hat firmly on and are iterating at a great rate collaboratively with their customers, Absolutely, which is incredible. Starling Bank's the same. There's a whole load of them like that. And then at the other end, you've got commercial banking propositions from many of the big five UK banks. They talk in such abstract terms with such a closed vocabulary that you're only really going to understand if you're in that industry and in that kind of uh, part of business that it makes it almost impenetrable to anybody else. 
that's done consciously to some degree. But then there's a whole load of design patterns that exist within commercial banking that are also exclusive to users. Um, and exclusive as in it's excluding people, not just, you know, it's, it's for a small group. In my experience of having worked across a number of commercial banking brands, it seems like it's never focused on the users at all. It's entirely squarely focused on money. And I get that, and, you know, it's all about making money. But at the same time, you know, there's people involved in this process and more thought should be given to them. And I think if, you know, just a small bit of design thinking was you, you'd, you'd be able to innovate quite quickly in that space. So mortgages are a really good example. The mortgage industry hasn't changed for since mortgages were invented. Sure. But recently, you've seen uh, small changes in the marketplace that are enabling uh, small innovations to happen. So um, there's digital mortgages now being offered by uh, some banks, which are in tandem with innovation work being done by the land registry in terms of digitizing land property and uh, deeds. Um, and that's allowing mortgages to happen more quickly and therefore are cheaper. And that's being driven out of talking to users about what they want in the banking world. And you're seeing a similar kind of thing in insurance. Insurance is, you know, it's always been money-led. It's never been about the people. But now you're beginning to see more challenger brands enter the market where they're offering insurance on a daily basis or insurance on one specific thing. Like, I'm going to insure my bike that I've borrowed off someone for today, or you know, it's that kind of it's incredibly niche stuff. Some really interesting business models are beginning to emerge based around the user rather than being based around the business. And I think the more that design thinking is used in those kind of contexts, the more we're going to see marketplaces fracture, we're going to see uh, the democratization of what traditionally have been you know hugely monolithic business kind of sectors, and you're going to see uh, greater uptake of microservices. So, Paul, to pick up on the point that you made about Monzo, and we obviously know that they're very heavily user-design driven and they've obviously won multiple awards for their designs, you are starting to see some of the more corporate banks starting to use some of the features in products that are typically found in places like Monzo. Do you find that that's the corporate banks starting to embrace design thinking, or do you feel that's pressure that they're starting to feel from challenger banks such as Monzo starting to steal some of their market share? So I think there's, there's two things happening here. Um, I think the uh, traditional, in that context, the traditional banking brands, they are now seeing the bottom end of their market being eroded by challenger brands. And, you know, time was Halifax was seen as a challenger brand because it offered cheap, mar- uh, cheap mortgages. Now, challenger brands are app-only banks. You know, they're, they're the new breed, the startups, who have recently got their banking licenses, and they're beginning to pick up one, two, three million customers. That's not insignificant. You know, the kind of velocity that Monzo is on, um, they are going to seriously impact the bottom line of Halifax, certainly, and mm-hmm. probably TSB as well, at the same kind of market. So I think they're feeling that commercial competition. I think they're also feeling agitation from within, from people who work there to go, we want to be doing some cool stuff. So that's why you're seeing, particularly in London, banks are now building significant design teams inside them. So Lloyd's TSB, their design team is huge now. And, you know, they've got a head of service design, they've got design ops. A few years ago, they would go to an external consultant and say, what do we need to do? But that, that can't continue. Sure. And I think the, the more you get people like Monzo innovating and opening stuff up, the more disruption we're going to see across that market. And it all comes back to looking at what the users want and meeting them where they are. So how do you feel that you can get key decision makers and stakeholders to start to care about supporting this design thinking mentality and framework? 
in projects? That's a good question. So uh, something that we're keen on in Kainos is as we're a growing group of designers, we are running programs of education for our internal stakeholders. So that's not only about getting people to know who designers are, what we do, what the different roles are, um, but it's also really trying to articulate what value design can add to their project. We are a big agile delivery organization and you know our heritage is software delivery. And that doesn't necessarily square particularly well with design thinking in its purest form. So we're doing a lot of work to try and show people how design thinking can be complementary in an agile world. So how do we tee things up ready to go into a backlog, you know, ready to go into discovery or even alpha or even beta? How does user research underpin constant learning throughout a project lifecycle? This is stuff that we're beginning to, I mean, we're doing it on projects already, but what we're doing is we're now beginning to pull our insights out of that, turn them into little learning modules, and then share them with people. So doing webinars, and doing little training sessions. Um, we're beginning to run design thinking sessions with the leadership team because it needs to flow down from them. Um, we're doing work with delivery managers so that they understand the work that we do better and how we can add value and how we can deepen relationships and how we can explore new opportunities and even surface opportunities that they didn't even know existed. Um, we are atomizing our tools to a certain degree. So we've created some small training modules on here's how to do a process map. Here's how to do an experience blueprint. Here is how to uh, do a really basic prototype. So people begin to get the idea of you know, what are the small, not only the deliverables that we will contribute into a team, but also what are the methods that we use on a really atomic level to get to the insights or to get to the understanding or to, to be able to feed into a user story and to be able to prioritise stuff in the background. Like It's all of that good stuff. We all know it and we've all got it there. So we're trying to lift it up at the moment and share that on a more educational aspect. And the other the other thing that I think really drives me and I think really drives the rest of the design crew is that design, it's a whole team activity. Research really should be a team sport. Like the more people go out and research and meet users, the better. And, and that should be, you know, a delivery manager should go, engineers should go, anyone involved in building the thing, anyone involved in coming up with the idea for the thing, they should go and see the people who are going to use them because it's only then you realise in context what it is you're doing. You know, it's nice to be able to say, I know Angular and I'm going to build this interface, but you kind of need to know who's going to use it, what they're going to use it for, what conditions are they going to experience it in, what devices is it going to be used on, and really understanding that will add depth to work and will deepen the quality of the user experience. I guess on that point of the whole team being involved. So as a business analyst myself, I think about understanding a problem, working with my team to come up with a solution, test it out, and then work out the best way to build it quickly while still obviously delivering value. How is design thinking different to that? Or how can design thinking complement that process that we that we know in Kainos as agile and obviously widening software development? I think the, the big thing is design thinking brings the voice of the user. That's the main thing. I think the processes overlap. And the models of thinking are probably really similar, but in design thinking, it's all about the lived experience. It's about the user experience and putting them front and center um, and allowing them to have an authentic voice rather than being you know, an abstract archetype or a set of assumptions. They're there as a set of fully problematic feedback that force you to think differently. And for some individuals hearing this and ties into part of what you just answered as well, of it obviously being a complementary part of Agile, this will be a completely new concept to them. How can they start applying some of these principles? 
firstly, it's understanding how design thinking can add value. But it's moreover than that, I think fundamentally it's about being curious about why something is done in a certain way and challenging it. That's the key thing for me. If somebody is uh, curious to understand why something's built in a certain way or has always been done in X way, and trying to get to the bottom of the reason behind that, and then being open to different solutions, they're the kind of principles, I think, attitudinal principles that should underpin the way that we approach projects. Um, I think in terms of practical uh, practical principles for people to use on um, within teams, it's going back to the old improv uh, way of thinking, which is yes and rather than no but. So yes, there's a, there's a place for challenge, but I also think in a team when you're creating a new thing, you should be building on each other's ideas and should be building on a rock solid foundation of insights. So it's yes and what can we do with this? Yes and what do we do next? Yes and how do we make it better? Sure. So it's that continuous improvement and it's continuous improvement in the context of the user. And if people remember one thing about design thinking, what should it be? That it's not a blocker. It's not there to hold up or derail anything. It's there to help a team get to the right solution more quickly and for that to be validated with users and for it to be you know, a, a, a rounded set of propositions that work first time rather than building something speculatively, realizing it doesn't work, building up a load of debt, coming back, iterating. You know, design thinking is there to help you get closer to doing the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. Paul, thanks a lot for your time today. That's been really insightful into how to think about design thinking. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, James and Paul, for that episode. If you like what you've heard and you want to listen to some more, please subscribe or share this episode with others. The Chatter team is JT Thacker, V. Rizazi, Olivia Sharp and Adam Dinby. I'm Abby Laurie. Thank you. Bye.